This podcast is brought to you by SecureFrame.com, the platform for automated compliance. SecureFrame makes it quick and easy to achieve a number of compliance measures in a matter of weeks rather than who knows how long. For those that have dealt with compliance before, you know that it's overwhelming to say the least. Creating policies from scratch, manually collecting loads of screenshot evidence, ensuring employee compliance, and keeping track of hundreds of vendors and documents. Sounds fun, right? (laughs) Thankfully, our friends at SecureFrame have simplified the entire process to save your team months of time and effort. SecureFrame automates hundreds of manual tasks. They streamline evidence collection through over 100 deep integrations with your cloud providers, HR tools, dev tools, and more. They provide you with over 40 auditor-approved policies and give you step-by-step guidance from in-house compliance experts. If this sounds like something you want to learn more about, go to secureframe.com to schedule a personalized demo today. When you look at a consumer fintech, the dirty little secret is everyone's roadmap looks very similar to one another. Everyone is coming out with their own debit accounts or debit cards. And I think what everyone's trying to realize is that there's really very few ways to build a sustainable business in fintech. And so we really see ourselves as kind of the growth platform for the future of fintech. It starts with being able to offer everything from really seamless direct deposit switching with just you know one or two clicks and then expanding outwards to offering things like earn wage access as a service, as well as we have access to direct deposits. You put those two together, there's all kind of like these little building blocks that we can unlock along the way. Hi everyone, it's Julie Verhage Greenberg here with your FinTech Today podcast, where we talk about the latest trends in FinTech and interview the industry's movers and shakers. In this episode, I am joined by Kurt Lin, co-founder and CEO of Pinwheel. They operate in the payroll API space and Kurt, I know you and Ian are good friends, but we have never had a chance to meet before, so I'm excited for us to have this conversation. Likewise, it's been a, a, I'm really excited actually, I have to say, to meet. Uh, I have been a huge fan of FTT for a while now, obviously through Ian, and have followed your work for a long time. So incredibly excited that we finally get a chance to chat live. With it, with that said, you know, I, I wish we would have had you on much sooner. <laughs> <laughs> Um, okay, so there there are a number of ways that companies are trying to disrupt the the payroll space. What exactly are you guys trying to do? What's your wedge here? Yeah, great question. So I think I should take uh, a step back and uh, provide some color around uh, what a quote unquote payroll API actually is, because I think it's actually much broader than just payrolls. Um, okay. So at kind of the fundamental level. Uh, what we're really doing is building the income layer of the financial system, right? If you think about every time you've ever applied for a mortgage or applied for an apartment and try to get a credit card or like buy a car, et cetera, you've always had to verify at the very least three very simple pieces of information. One is who you are. Two is how much you make. And three is where you work. And surprisingly, you know, it's 2022 now and everything that I've heard from friends um, is that you're still providing a paper pay stub, downloading your W-2s, packaging it all together and giving it to your broker to then go and you know process things. And it's crazy, right? Like, why are we still dealing with paper um, given how advanced everything else in society has become? And the reason for that is because there really isn't kind of this data layer that connects the sources that have this information, such as payroll, but not just payroll, right? It's also uh, these gig platforms like Uber and Lyft. It's uh, many of these like future of work platforms, whether it's eBay or Etsy or you know YouTube. If you're a creator economy person, the definition of what uh, you know income and employment really means now is changing drastically, and so it really is 
connecting all these disparate sources of that information into a single API and then allowing the banks, the lenders, the fintechs, those who are really trying to build the future of the financial system to be able to access that information in a very seamless way to build the future of what they're building. And so I think that's kind of uh, what we're doing at a high level. Uh, to answer your question around the wedge, I think mm-hmm. one of the really interesting things that we have seen is when you look at consumer fintech more broadly, I think the dirty little secret that a lot of people are just not really willing to admit is mm-hmm. everyone's roadmap looks very similar to one another's, right? If you like look at uh, the market, especially in the past 12 months or so, everyone is coming out with their own uh, debit accounts, right? Or debit cards, right? Uh, especially um, if you weren't originally a neobank, uh, everyone from Credit Karma to, you know, all these other yeah. companies like Betterment, et cetera, are now starting to actually roll those out. And I think what everyone's trying to realize is that there's really very few ways to build a sustainable business in fintech, right? It's mm-hmm. either uh, some sort of SaaS model where you have such tremendous amount of outsized value that you can really uh, substantiate that price to a consumer, or most likely you're realizing that you have to earn money the same way that banks have been earning money for hundreds of years, right? Which is, okay, put your money in with us. We can make some element of interchange off of how you spend. But really what we're doing is creating lock-in and creating engagement with you as a consumer. And then once we have that, you know, that debit account others direct deposits with us, then we can start to actually upsell you into more value added services, right? Either higher margin products uh, on the lending side or um, newer age products like earn wage access, what have you. And so we really see ourselves as kind of the, the growth platform for the future of fintech in the same way that, you know, there were uh, companies like Plaid who were kind of the progenitor of the first wave of innovation. We really see ourselves as kind of the second um, uh, driver of this next uh, stage of growth. And uh, it starts with being able to offer everything from really seamless direct deposit switching with just you know one or two clicks for those folks, and then expanding outwards to offering things like earn wage access as a service, because we know when someone has clocked in and clocked out of their um, shift that day, as well as we have access to direct deposits, you put those two together. Voila, you have an actual, you know, really modular um, kind of way to do earn wage in a way that has never been done before. And we've seen a lot of pull from the, um, from the market uh, with that. But also, you know, down the line, things like installment lending as a service or um, uh, revolving credit as a service, et cetera. Right. And there's all kind of like these little building blocks that we can unlock along the way. So what all does it take to go into those building blocks and how do you kind of prioritize? Because it sounds like you have a lot of things that you know you guys are capable of doing, um, which is both a blessing as a, and a curse <laughs> as a fellow founder. Um, so how do you prioritize which ones you go towards and what exactly goes into it? Yes, uh, a painful problem for any uh, fellow <laughs> founder. So I'm glad you can commiserate. Um, I think you hit the nail on the head here, which is with a platform like this, there are so many use cases that the biggest danger we really have is just, do we bite off more than we can chew? And there's actually a pretty simple answer to it from our perspective, which is just really understanding where the market is pulling us. And so I like to joke with our team that, you know, this is one of the few product roles um, where you don't necessarily have to have a tremendous amount of conviction for a, a, a bet that, you know, maybe contrarian or otherwise, because... Uh, the pull is always so strong with our customers. Like usually if one customer is asking for it, so are the next, you know, 25 to 30 that we're talking to. And so all of a sudden it becomes, oh, like it's really obvious that we should be rolling out, 
you know, an earn wage access um, product and the, uh, as our next big bet, or, hey, everyone keeps asking us for um, an automated tax solution. Great. We have access to your paychecks in real time. We also have access to your W-2s. Why couldn't we build a, a real-time W-2 um, with all the customers who are really asking for it, right? And so it's actually this like really um, – it makes, I think, our jobs really easy from a product roadmap standpoint because it's just customers banging on our door being like, please build this, please build that. And then it really is just making sure that we can actually do what they want really, really well um, and then try to get as much of it done as possible, which is why um, we are growing the engineering team at the clip that we are. Yeah, so you guys have raised a couple of funding rounds within the past year or so. What uh, what has that funding largely gone to? I would assume engineers, as you said, but what else? Yeah, so for context, uh, we raised uh, a seven million seed round from our good friends at First Round, and then soon thereafter another twenty million round from our good friends at Kotu. And between those two rounds, a lot of it was just kind of really investing in the. Uh, infrastructure and the foundation, right? I think one of the things that never really gets written about when you look at TechCrunch headlines or whatever is the fact that infrastructure platforms take so long to build, right? Like mm. we were building for a year plus, just, you know, frankly, a bunch of us in a closet. Um, and by closet, I really mean uh, a room <laughs> with no <laughs> windows, which might as well might as well have been a closet. Um, just really trying to get this thing to work really, really well, right? And once we finally got there, um, then it was actually, you know, going to the market and, you know, building those use cases on top of it. And so a big chunk of that was really just making sure that we had what we believe to be unequivocally the most kind of performant platform um, in the space, right? And so everything from uh, uptime to the extent of the coverage that we actually have to market leading conversion rates to the, you know, transaction volume we have on the platform, we're really focused on making sure that across every conceivable metric for performance that we're, you know, always knocking it out of the park. And then uh, with this most recent round, you know, we raised, uh, you know, very grateful to have raised another um, 50 million from our good friends at GGV. And that is, I think, more of an accelerant um, now that we've really been able to show that we can uh, provide a lot of value to our existing customers. And so now this is, I think, two buckets. One is continuing to scale the engineering team at a much faster clip. So, you know, of the, uh, 60 or actually a little less than 70 folks we have on the team now. We have uh, a little more than 40 are engineers. And so the majority of the team are engineers and that will continue to be the case, especially um, as we uh, expand the platform. And then two is, um, I think one of the most exciting parts about what we do is that uh, there are more and more use cases that we would have never dreamed of. Right, that yeah. we like get an inbound from someone. They're like, "Hey, uh, can you actually uh, allow us to do something like offer someone's tax refund, even with only two months of information?" Right, um, and you're like, "Okay, that's technically possible. It's really exciting." And I think about all the applications of this, but <laughs> we're gonna have to carve out some folks to really explore this deeply and like go figure it out. And I think that's the other piece of it is it really allows us to kind of take bigger swings and go for some moonshots that we may not otherwise actually be um, able to go after if we were less resource constrained. So there's all these you know, really exciting uh, kind of future uh, use cases and platforms that we're excited to invest in. 
So how does becoming a CRA or a consumer reporting agency have to do with um, that? Like to me, when I interviewed Misha from Nova Credit, it made sense because they're dealing a lot with credit reporting and everything. That's like the main business model. Um, But for a payroll API, it's kind of like, wait, like how exactly is this going to play into there? So explain that to me a bit. Yeah, it's a really, really great question. So one of the most simple things that we do is we really just unlock data from all these disparate sources and put it in the hands of, again, the fintechs, the banks, the lenders who actually need that information to either verify someone's income and employment or actually underwrite. And so one of the most exciting pieces of all of this is we are already are starting to have the data to show that for example, a teacher or a nurse who's been at the same job for five or six years has incredibly stable income, incredibly stable employment from a risk perspective uh, is actually really good. So even though they have a FICO of 550, they actually perform much closer to a 700. And especially if you add in the fact that we also have you know direct access to their paychecks, of course, with the consumer's very explicit consent, you start to really have a lot of levers you can pull to manage risk in a much more effective way. And now all of a sudden, a lender who would say no originally is actually coming back to the table now and saying, actually, we see what you're saying here. The data actually corroborates this. We feel much more comfortable moving downstream to service these folks. And so we have a really powerful opportunity here to live up to our mission and our ethos of building a fairer financial system by creating this connectivity between where all this data sits and the lenders and banks who are actually making decisions about you know, people's financial well-beings and approving them for these financial products on a day-to-day basis. Um, and so related to that, we saw an opportunity for us to, I mean, when do you ever hear about a, a startup leaning into regulation, right? It's like 99% of the time, it's like, oh, we're going to like dodge this thing and try not to deal with it until we absolutely have to. But we really see our role here in kind of moving the whole industry forward and establishing a standard, right? And being a CRA uh, basically means that as a consumer reporting agency, we are liable and we stand behind the quality of our data, right? If in a world, the data that we provide to a lender ends up leading to adverse action for a consumer, we are liable and we should be, right? In what world is our foundational product data and then somehow we're not standing behind the quality of the data? Right. And especially if it leads to outcomes that are bad for consumers. And so for us, it was a no brainer. Right. It's like, yes, it's a, it was candidly a huge pain in the ass to like set this all up. <laughs> but it but like we would have to do it sooner or later. So we might as well do it now, get ahead of it and really establish that we do believe in the integrity of the information that we provide. And it's something that has always really kind of rubbed me the wrong way when I've seen other data aggregators kind of play the card of like, oh, well, we're simply just passing data through. Right. So like, if it's not accurate or whatever, that's not really on us. I mean, that doesn't make any sense, right? Like if, if your foundational product, again, is data and connectivity, how can you not stand behind it and say that, yes, like everything that we provide, we stand behind because it really is A, affecting the outcomes for consumers and B, it's also affecting the ability for our customers to actually build um, products that actually work and you know underwrite in a way that is actually going to be much more effective down the line. What on the on the CRA front, how does that play into the partnerships that you guys make too? Does it make it so companies are more willing to work with you? Like, hey, by the way, like we are liable, you are not liable? Yeah, it certainly helps, right? Um, I think it's uh, always uh, the, the, the example I always give to my team is, you know, when you see a product on a shelf and it says, you know, money back guarantee, like, okay, like if this thing sucks, 
Um, I, I, I know that they really stand behind their product because, you know, they, they had this guarantee, right? And I think in many ways, being a CRA is kind of like that, where it's like, look, we stand behind what we do. And so obviously, would you work with someone who really, you know, is vocal about that and, you know, puts that on paper? Or someone who's just like, oh, well, you know, we'll work with you to figure it out if something goes wrong. Um, and I think the market has really responded um, to the decisions we made from a commercial perspective um, by being a CRA. So obviously product is a big part of what you guys do, but these partnerships are a big part of that as well. Talk to me a little bit about your go-to-market strategy here. Like what are your big selling points? And, you know, you obviously you have to work with banks, you have to work with lenders, you have to work with a lot of other uh, entities that might not be the most fun to work with out there. So talk to me a bit about your experience. It's a fantastic question. Uh, I think first and foremost, we really think about things in a kind of key order of operations, right? And so what I mean by that is, what is the first thing and the most important thing that our customers and potential customers care about most? And it really is just, you know, does the product work not only well, but better than anything else that they can get their hands on, right? And so at the very end of the day, um, there's a couple of key metrics that, you know, every single person will always ask us, which is, you know, what is your coverage? Uh, what is the, the conversion of the platform, et cetera. And again, because of uh, the incredible work of the team and again, having an outsized engineering team, we've really been able to kind of have that be a leading thing for us, right? Being able to say, hey, um, go connect us. And then better yet, we encourage you to go test us against, you know, whatever else you see in the market. And we'll prove to you that we have the best coverage, the best conversion, the most performing platform, right? So I think that's one and something that we always lead with. Uh, two is uh, when you talk about an API platform like ours, the number one indicator of success is how much traffic you have going through your platform. Because what that really means is that it's battle tested, it's proven. And especially if you have really big customers who are enterprise, you know, they don't want to work with anyone who doesn't have uh, meaningful volume flowing to their platform, right? Um, one of the things that we've been very lucky to have is, you know, some very big logos from a very early on uh, from a timeline perspective. Uh, whereas I think some people, when they think about API businesses, try to go bottoms up, right? It's like, hey, let's just work with as many startups as possible. And then we'll work our way up to the, to the whales. We actually kind of went the inverse direction. And the reason being is, when you think about all the most successful kind of generational uh, API platforms, they all kind of followed a similar playbook, right? If you look at uh, Twilio, for example, uh, the Uber and Lyft two-factor off use case was a huge driver of their business and their traffic for a long time. That was kind of what got them really on the map and drove a lot of uh, their platform volume. If you look at Marketa, at their S1, uh, Square was literally 70% of their revenue, right? One would argue that's not necessarily the best place to be as a business, but it certainly is what helps you kind of really establish, uh, you know, credibility and uh, stability of an API platform, which is what people really care about. And then, you know, I'm sure everyone knows, you know, with Plaid, they had Novembo as one of their big customers early on as well. And so you really see that there is this tried and true playbook here. And so we kind of the same thing by going after some of the largest players in the space, like, you know, Square, et cetera, to really kind of drive volume first. Uh, and in top-down fashion versus the potentially more common approach of going bottoms up. So we can't end this conversation without bringing up buzzwords like crypto, Web3, blockchain, <laughs> all of that stuff. How are you guys thinking about that space? Yeah, so uh, I think anyone who isn't thinking about 
some element of Web3 strategy is certainly already, you know, behind the times. And I think we have a very unique opportunity here where we are building an incredible uh, data set of consumer data, everything from, again, who you are to how much you make to where you work. And being able to translate that into uh, a Web3 solution that is obviously uh, decentralized is one of the things that we're thinking about and really excited to explore as we move in uh, to 2022 and beyond. And I think it's a very natural segue for both the business as well as, again, our mission, which was to always empower consumers to have access to their own data accordingly. And so by being able to move it from a centralized format that has always been the case, right? Like if you look at Equifax or these bureaus or um, they've always had this data siloed into a single central entity. And that's really not what we're trying to do. Like if we can move into a world where we decentralize everything and put it into the hands of the folks who you know actually deserve to own their own data, um, A, it's a much more a stable approach to platform building and B, it's just the right thing to do, right? And so um, can't say that you know, we'll have everything totally ready to go you know, this year, but that's certainly certainly that is on our roadmap and we're excited to build towards. Roughly what percent of your time do you think is spent on uh, those types of things versus, you know, traditional product and I guess TradFi would be the term. I don't even know anymore. <laughs> but how are you kind of thinking about that? Because I think there's a lot of people that believe in all of this and I kind of count myself in that camp that believe in it, but think it's a little bit overhyped right now. And there's a lot of things that are happening that seem like use cases that long-term probably aren't use cases. And then obviously a slew of other things that we haven't even discovered yet that are use cases for this. Yeah, it's a good question. So I think we ascribe largely to the kind of Google philosophy of the 80-20, right? Where um, 80% of our time should be focused on really moving the needle on the things that have gotten us to where we are now and that we are, you know, have very high conviction will get us to that kind of next big milestone, whether it is revenue, market share, or continued growth uh, from a platform perspective. But, you know, we're all dreamers here, right? Like we're not working in tech because we think we're just going to move the needle 1% for the rest of our lives. We really want to make big bets that will jump us at least one or two step functions forward into the future. And so I always continue to challenge my team. I don't know if you're familiar with this term BHAGs, big big, hairy, audacious goals. Oh, yeah. No, I have heard that before. <laughs> yeah. Okay. It's a, it's a uh, creation of uh, Jim Collins, who, like, I'm a big fan of his work, whether it's, like, turning the flywheel or good to great. And uh, I always challenge my team, you know, whenever we do planning, it's like, what are the BHAGs for, you know, each person's function, right? Like, shoot for the stars and really, really try because you would surpri- you'll surprise yourself if you have a great team. Um, how much of it they can actually accomplish if there really, you know, isn't a second choice or a second option. And so, you know, we're really excited about the future of both Pinwheel and frankly of, of FinTech as a whole, right? Like uh, there's just, I really believe we're still in the bottom of the first inning here and there's still so much left to build. If anyone wants to get in contact with you or Pinwheel, what's the best way for them to do that? Uh, yeah, so the easiest way would be either uh, via email. So it's Kurt at pinwheelapi.com. Um, I have a uh, tiny and truly tiny uh, <laughs> Twitter following, but I am slowly trying to grow that out. So people can also <laughs> follow me on Twitter at uh, Curtis, K-U-R-T-I-S-J-L-I-N. Um, and hopefully the next time you follow me, there will be more than you know a, a handful of folks uh, following my Still very nascent, but quickly growing. Well, uh, I, I'll add to that list for you there too, because I don't think I follow you quite yet. So we'll, we'll make that happen. <laughs> so you gained at least one follower from this podcast. 
that that is very high ROI, and I will I will take it <laughs> to the bank. Already worth it. Uh, well, thank you, Curtis. I appreciate you taking the time, um, and we'll talk again soon. Thanks, Julie. This was a pleasure. I'm glad to be a chance to connect live, and can't wait to do it again. Of course. Talk soon, guys.